Father, we thank you, Lord, for another day that you blessed us with. Lord, we thank you that your word says that we can cast our cares upon you because you care for us. We thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers, that you love us, that you've forgiven us in Christ. Lord, we pray that your word would touch our hearts in a special way this morning, that we would perhaps see something we haven't seen before, Lord, that we would grow closer to you, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that we would love you, Lord, as your word says, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. So, Lord, help us this morning. Remove any distractions, any hindrances, anything that would get in the way of seeing you, savoring you, loving you, seeing your beauty, your holiness, your glory, your power. So be with us, Lord. Bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of today's teaching is Delighting in the God of the Psalms. Delighting in the God of the Psalms. I remember a couple years back I was mentoring somebody and this person claimed to be a Christian. They were, though, in and out of jail, um, on and off of drugs, and for a couple months they were sober and I was pouring into them and they continued to seem like they were making some spiritual growth. So I continued to share scripture with them and counsel them and encourage them in the Lord. One day we were talking about the Psalms and I was sharing with him how much I have gained from gleaning from the Psalms, from meditating on the Psalms, from memorizing some of the Psalms. And we were discussing this at which point he then turned to me and said, the Psalms, they don't really do anything for me. I don't really get much out of the Psalms. And I was like taken aback because we had a lot of good biblical discussions up to that point. But he said, I don't just, I don't get anything out of the Psalms. They don't do much for me. And from that, it wasn't long after that that this friend went back to his old lifestyle. He went back to the world. God forbid that we should ever have that attitude that, Oh, this part of God's word doesn't do anything for me. Now, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. There are parts of the Bible I understand and have read through the Bible several times, hopefully more in the years to come. I try to read through it every year. When we read through genealogies and certain parts of the Old Testament, it can be tough at times, Right? can be those days where we don't feel like reading God's word and we're like what how does this apply but if we truly seek the Lord if we're if we go to him in humility all of God's word can speak to us but particularly the Psalms and if God's word isn't speaking to us if it's not transforming our lives if we're not getting something something out of it we should pray like David in Psalm 119 verse 18 he says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Open my eyes, Lord. Open my heart to your truth. That should be our prayer. When it comes to the Psalms, Colossians 3.16, this is what Paul tells the church in Coloss. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. We're commanded to teach, to sing, to meditate, to learn from the psalms. In the psalms, we find wonder. We find beauty. We find majesty. We find glory. It's all throughout the psalms. The question is, do we see it? Do we long to see it? It's Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19, when he tells the Ephesian church, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe. The hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, the surpassing greatness of his power. This is all found in the Psalms. I was reading last night about a man by the name of Alfred Barnes. He's written commentaries on much of the Bible. He spent 12 years writing commentaries on the book of Psalms. 12 years. And he was discussing in one of these commentaries that I was reading, one of these sections from the Psalms of him, of how he said many people have endeavored to write good commentaries of the Psalms. And he felt like many failed but this is what he says of the Psalms. 
He says, quote, the Psalms are so rich, so full of meaning, so adapted to the wants of believers. They so meet the varied experiences of the people of God and are so replete with the illustrations of piety. They so touch the deepest fountains of emotion in the soul that so far as most of these points are considered a quote-unquote commentary considered as an additional source of light does not differ materially from a candle considered as affording additional splendor to the sun. He's saying these commentaries are like a candle compared to the sun. You, you look at these commentaries of the Psalms and you, you go, I, I need to get back to the Psalms. I need to get back to meditating on these songs and Psalms that men like David and Moses and Solomon and the sons of Korah and Asaph these psalms that they wrote, he's saying like they're like the sun in all their beauty and glory. The psalms are songs of worship. They're written over a period of a thousand years. Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses. Moses lived around 1400 or so B.C. All the way to psalms leading up to the Babylonian captivity. Some believe that Ezra was even the one that compiled all of the psalms together around that time. Real men who wrote these psalms, who had real struggles, real doubts at times, real spiritual battles within their soul. Take Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, for example. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Or how about Psalm 10, verse 1? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How about Psalm 13, 1? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Real, authentic, transparent questions. How about the inner spiritual struggle and battle that was going on in Psalm 42? In verse 5 and 11, this is what the psalmist says there in Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? He goes back and forth in that psalm of despair. And then he says, hope in God. Back to despair. Hope in God. He's wrestling. He's preaching to himself to trust in the Lord. Real men, real struggles, real doubts at times, yet they proclaimed the goodness of God and, gl and gave glory to the one who they knew was in control. David didn't stop at verse 2 in Psalm 22. He says yet in verse 3. You find that word a lot in the Psalms, yet, nevertheless, but they share their struggles, they share their doubts, they share their difficulties, and then they race to the throne of God and Here's what David says in Psalm 22, 3. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned above the praises of Israel. He says in Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And then in verses 28 and 29 of Psalm 22. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him even he who cannot keep his soul alive. The word halal, the Greek word, or the Hebrew word halal, is used over 80 times in the Psalms. It means praise. I mean, that's the point of the Psalms, to give God the praise that he deserves. It's used 12 times in Psalm 150, in six verses. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. The psalmist can't help but praise the Lord. God wants us to praise him. God deserves our praise. He deserves all glory. That's the point of the Psalms. So my goal over the next couple weeks, the next five weeks or so, is to take a Psalm from each of the five books of the Psalms. Now, the Psalms are divided into five books. Maybe you didn't know that. Five books or five sections. The first section is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. The second section is Psalm 42 through 72. If you look at some of your Bibles, when you get to Psalm 42 in these different sections, right above the section, it will say book number two, book three, book four. They're compiled together with 
the same topic of Psalms. So Psalm 42 through 72 is book two. Psalm 73 to Psalm 89 is book three. Psalm 90 to Psalm 106 is book four. Psalm 107 to Psalm 150 is book five. Each book ends with a doxology, a praise, a blessing. For instance, Psalm 4113, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Some believe that the Psalms were broken down into five books to resemble the books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to resemble the first five books of the Bible. In an article titled Devotional, the Five Books of the Psalms, Davis Carman summarizes the five books in a helpful way. He says book one, or Psalm 1 through Psalm 41, can be described as God beside us. Like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. There's God beside him, leading him. Book two, God going before us. Book three, God around us. Book four, God above us. Book five, God among us. The Psalms place God at the center. He's at the center of, the te- of attention where he's meant to be enjoyed, where he's meant to be treasured and blessed and worshipped. The thing is with the Psalms is they show us, though, how sin can block that off, how the doubts, the trials, the circumstances of life can get in the way of that worship. And that's what we see in Psalm 22. That's what we see in Psalm 42. That's what we're going to see in a Psalm that I want to look at today. Now, I debated to go, I was going back and forth in my mind. Should I just do an overview of all the Psalms and kind of fly over many of them? Or should we dive in and try to look at one Psalm today? And so that's what I decided to do. Psalm 73, a Psalm of Asaph. Who is Asaph? If you'll turn with me to Psalm 73, as we'll read it in just a minute. Asaph is attributing to writing 12 Psalms. Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 through 83. We're told in Scripture, in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 31 through 39, that David, King David, instructed the Levites to praise and worship God in the tabernacle. He brought them in when the ark was brought back to worship. He would sacrifice, and they would sacrifice offerings to the Lord, and then they would break forth in praise we're told that they would bring forth and praise with harps and lyres, cymbals, and, l- and loud trumpets. A loud worship fest, if you will, to the Lord. Psalm 73 describes the attitude that perhaps every believer has experienced in their walks with the Lord at one point or another. The frame of mind that asks these questions Why are the wicked prospering and I'm suffering? Why do the arrogant seem to flourish and be at ease while I'm struggling over here? Statements like, I'm a child of God experiencing unending, relentless trials. And it seems like the wicked, the arrogant, the prideful, people maybe that I work with, people that I run into in the world, they're at ease. They're increasing in wealth. They seem to be flourishing while I'm struggling over here. Questions like, is it all worth it? Am I doing this for nothing? Should I stay the course or should I jump ship? Should I join the other side? Should I see what the world has to offer? That's what's going on in Psalm 73. Perhaps if you're real, that's what's been going on in your heart before at one time or another. A man of God who came close to falling. A man who was almost deceived, yet in the midst of his confusion, in the midst of his doubts, he also says, well, we'll look at it in a minute. I don't want to jump the gun. In the midst of all his frustration and confusion, he found answers in the sanctuary of God and in the counsel of the Holy One. Let's read Psalm 73. 
Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Don't you love that ending? Those last six verses, that's what I love about the Psalms. They don't typically stay in the pit. They start off that way, but they get to the good stuff. Like any good musician, he ends on a good note. But as for me, it reminds me of Joshua, Joshua twenty four fifteen. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yeah, though the wicked go this way and that way, though they seem to be doing well, but as for me, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. It reminds me of Micah 4, 5. Though each of the peoples may walk in the name of his God, yet we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You think by verse 23, you think by the end, Asaph had it all figured out? You think every single question that he was pondering, he absolutely had every answer for? I don't believe so. I think in our weaknesses and our frailty and our imperfections, on this side of eternity, there's going to be some things that we just don't quite understand. Yet my hope, my prayer is that we boldly proclaim like Asaph, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Now, he actually starts off pretty good as well, if you look at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Jesus echoed this verse in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. King David asks a question in Psalm 24, 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. It's the pure. It's the clean. It's those washed who are blessed of God. I mean, the first psalm starts off this way. Psalm 1-1. Now, the psalms aren't written in chronological order. From the time they were written, Moses in Psalm 90 is not the first psalm. It's Psalm 90. So these psalms are put in a certain way, in a certain form, for a certain purpose. 
Now Psalm 1.1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Those who compiled the Psalms want us to know where the blessing is found, where the joy is found. It's not found in the house of the wicked. It's found in the house of the Lord, trusting in him, keeping a clean and pure heart. And David understood this in Psalm 51 after falling into horrific sin, adultery, murder, covering it up, lying, deceitfulness. Cries out to God in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. He goes on to say, Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And renew a right spirit within me. He drifted from the Lord. He drifted from joy. He drifted from the peace. He drifted from the place of blessing. He had clean hands. He had a pure heart. And then he fell. He fell into the pit like many of the psalmists. And so he went to the only place he knew where he could find joy, satisfaction, and blessing, and ultimately salvation to God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. So Asaph knows God is good. That's how he starts off. He's experienced his kindness, his love, his mercy, his goodness, and he begins the psalm by proclaiming this fact. But then the conundrum begins, the quandary, the perplexity. Surely God is good to Israel. Then the question is why? Why verses 4 through 12? Why does it seem like the wicked are prospering? Why are they at ease? Why are they wealthy? Why are they doing so good in life? And my life is so hard over here. So he gets real in verses 2 and 3. Remember he ends with but as for me and that's where he starts in verse 2. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's being transparent. That's what I love about the Psalms. He's real. He's confessing. How many people have read this? Billions of people, perhaps, that have read the Bible are seeing this man's insecurity, so to speak, his weaknesses, his confession in verses 2 and 3, not sur surface level, not superficial. That's what I love about the scripture and particularly the Psalms, the rawness, the realness, the hardship, the struggle. It's a confession, a willingness to admit his ignorance, a willingness to admit his foolishness. You could even say a willingness to admit his stupidity acting like an animal. Now that's not me saying that. That's his own commentary, his own assessment of himself. Verse 22, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal. I was like a beast before you. He's recalling, recounting his attitude for thinking such thoughts as verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the, prosper the prosperity of the wicked. So when he says in verse 22, I was senseless, the Hebrew word actually means stupid. It's translated that way in Proverbs 30, verse 2 in the NASB and other translations. I was stupid and ignorant, acting like an animal for being envious. That's what sin does to us. It makes us foolish. He's confessing what many have felt and few have opened up about. At least in our day and age, many of us can put on a face, can't we? We can all do it really well. I even feel that at my job. I just Everyone's smiling and happy, and I know deep down inside they're not. Now, sometimes they are, but especially if they don't know the Lord. Man, there is an emptiness. There is a void in their heart. But man, if you see them at the school that I work at, they're always happy and joyful. But then when you get in that break room, there where people really show their true colors, their true feelings, then you see the reality of what's going on inside. But the moment they walk out of that break room, the moment they're talking to the other staff members, everything's good. Everyone's at peace with each other. Everyone's having a great day. Get behind those closed doors. People are talking bad about people. People are envying one another. People are mad that this person's making more than them. It's like a 
reality TV show in there. It's pretty sad. And I got to be careful because before I know it, I'm getting pulled right into it. I'm getting suckered right into this mess. Sometimes I just got to run out of there, get some fresh air, pray for a little bit, and then go back in and be prepared. But that's what I love about these Psalms. The rawness, the realness. Proverbs 28:13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. God doesn't want us to conceal our sin. He wants us to lay it all bare, lay it out, put it out in front of him. First and foremost to God. God, here's what I'm going through. Here's my sins. Here's my confession with a humble heart to God. And then if you can find someone you trust in the Lord to confide in them as well and say, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm struggling with. So he goes on in verse, verses 4 through 12 to describe what he saw in the wicked that which he envied, that which almost caused him to fall. In verses 4 through 12, it's truth mingled with error. It's reality mixed with illusion. That's what sin does. It confuses us. It confused Asaph. It makes people delusional. That's what sin does. It causes people to say like Asaph verses 4 and 5. There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. That was his assessment of the wicked. Is that a true assessment? Listen to Romans 2.9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. Psalm 32.10. Many are the... Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but loving devotion surrounds him who trusts in the Lord. How about Psalm 16, 4? Sorrows will multiply to those who chase other gods. Or Proverbs 13, 21. Disaster pursues sinners, but prosperity is, re is the reward of the righteous. Surely he heard about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Surely he heard about Noah's flood where the whole world was wiped out because of their wickedness. That doesn't sound like there are no pains in their death. There are no, there's no troubles for the wicked. They're not plagued like mankind. What about the ten plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh and what happened to Pharaoh's army? Surely he knew these stories. But sin clouds our thinking. It makes us delusional. It causes us to forget who God is and what he's done. False perception becomes reality and that's what Satan thrives on. Listen to 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you're in the word, if you're in the truth, if you're in prayer, if you're meditating on the Lord, can Satan touch you? Yeah, he can try you. He can tempt you. He can do what he did to Job, but if you are trusting in the Lord, you are, as Paul says, steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain. You're like a house that's built upon the rock, like Jesus said. So when the storm comes, the waters, the, the tumultuous storm that's raging against your life comes your way, you're built on the rock. Yeah, some windows might break. Yeah, that house might shake a little bit, but you are secure. That's a sober-minded man. He's not just talking about drunkenness. He's talking about not having the polluting influences of the world affect your mind. It could be greed. It could be lust. It could be many different sins that can cause us not to be sober-minded so that we're easy prey for the enemy. That's where Asaph is slowly drifting in this psalm. So verses 6 through 12, 6 through 12 in Psalm 73, he gives a pretty accurate assessment of the wicked. Talks about pride and is their necklace and violence covers them and their imaginations run riot and they mock and they speak wickedly and they speak out against God and they say, how does God know? Yeah, that's, a, that's an accurate depiction. As I mentioned, truth with error, reality with imagination, fantasy 
fantasy, and that's what we see here in these verses. He has some true assessment. Sure, the wicked mock. But verse 12, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They're not always at ease. And that's how Satan can tempt us, looking at people in the world and thinking, man, if I could just have their lifestyle, not even in the world necessarily, could even be other Christians that we can envy. Anyone else that maybe has something we don't, and then our imagination can start to run amok till we're like, man, I wish I had what that person had. I wish I had what that family had, when really we don't know all that's going on behind the scenes. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Asaph switches from speaking of they, third person, in verses 4 through 12, back to I. As he's wrestling with contentment, wrestling with trust, as many of us have before, wondering if the daily battle of being a believer is worth it. Look at what he says. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Verse 13. And washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Is this really worth it? That's what he's saying in verses 13 and 14. I'm suffering over here. I'm being tempted. I'm being tried. I'm hurting. Life is hard. Some of us have kids. Some of us go to work and we're struggling there maybe, struggling with life decisions. And we can feel that way at times, if we're real, most of us, maybe not all of us, I don't know. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of your children seems that he's saying in verse 15 that these previous verses were something that he wasn't going around telling every person. He wasn't, t- he wasn't going around perpetrating this nonsense. It was something going on in his heart, something going on in his mind. He had at least enough sense to say, I'm going to keep most of this within. I'm not going to defile other people, other believers with this nonsense. If you listen to what the Cambridge Bible commentary states, quote, instead of parading his doubts, he wrestled with them until in the sanctuary, the solution of them was revealed to him. Where does the breakthrough happen? Verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. That's where the solution occurred. That's where the breakthrough happened in the sanctuary of God. That's where the fog lifted. That's where the clarity came. That's where the delusion subsided. The lies were destroyed in the sanctuary of God. Truth reigned supreme in the sanctuary. David says something similar in Psalm 63. He says, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then Psalm 63, 2. He says, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. Here's David in Psalm 63 out in the desert. No water. Yet he's trusting in the Lord. He's struggling. Like many of the Psalms, where does he turn? Psalm 63, 2. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. In the sanctuary. I think that's what Satan was trying to do during COVID. Get people out of the sanctuary. Get people isolated. Get people alone. Get people away from being sober-minded. Get people on their devices. Get people in a state of fear so that they're confused, worried, panicked to where they can't trust in God. They can't see his beauty. They can't see his glory. They can't trust his goodness. They forget about what he's done in the past so they can't trust him in the future. That's where the enemy wants to get all of us. So many of the psalmists are racing back to the sanctuary, racing back to the presence of God. So David says, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, Psalm 51. 
That's where the joy is found. Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. As believers, that's where we want to get. In his presence, in the sanctuary, around believers, around those who can care for us, encourage us, edify us, into his word, meditating on it day and night, will be like a tree planted by the water, like a house built on the rock. That's where we need to go. We need to be reoriented, recalibrated as we allow the truth to correct our false perceptions. And I don't know about you, that's what it feels like as I go back into the world. Maybe I go to a Bible study, I get into the word, I go to church, I feel uplifted at times. Maybe you hear a worship song or you're praying to the Lord, you feel strengthened feel like your relationship is good and then you go out into the world. You go to work. You're around non-believers. They start to affect your walk with the Lord. You start to doubt things, question things. You start to think like them, act like them at times. And we need to be reoriented, recalibrated, back into the presence of the Lord. That's why it's so important that you meditate on God's word day and night. That you do what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us to do. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you're praying at all times, if you're rejoicing at all times, what, is, what can Satan do to you? What can the world do to your walk with the Lord if you're constantly seeking him, growing in the knowledge of him? That's where we need to be and that's where Asaph went. That's where the solution was realized. Matthew 3.10, this is what John the Baptist told the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were coming out to be baptized, just to make a good showing. He says, and the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's what we see in verses 18 and 19. This was the epiphany, if you will. Surely you put them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. They're destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. The cloud has lifted. The fog has subsided. He sees the truth. He sees the end. He sees that the wicked are on their way to hell. As John says, the axe is at the root of the tree. They're about to be cut down at any moment. Yeah, they might have money. Yeah, they might have apparent success. Yeah, they might look like from the outside that they have their life all together, but the ax is at the root of the tree. It's coming down soon. It's only by God's amazing grace that they take another breath. They're about to perish. This is what Asaph realizes. Now, I love the closing, verses 23 through 28. I love how he's able to return to the Lord, boast in God. That's his focus. That's his joy, making God his main desire. So many of us, like Asaph, get off track because our focus is off. I had a talk recently with my son. I have three kids, and I talked to Leland, my oldest, recently because he's so focused on his sister. Verity gets to watch TV and I have to clean up. Verity gets chocolate and I don't get any chocolate. Verity gets to go to Nani and Pappy's house and I have to stay here and be bored with you guys, you old people, mommy and daddy. Verity does this, Verity does that, Verity this. Why can't I? Ver if Verity gets to do this, then I get to do this too. He's so focused on Verity. And I had to pull him aside and go, Leland, you have a roof over your head. You have food in the fridge. You have mommy and daddy who have blessed you in so many ways. You have so many toys, we can't fit them in this new house that we just got. We just went down a little bit at square feet, so we need to get rid of a lot more of your toys because you've accumulated so much, you can barely walk in your room, honey. Leland, do you want me to take you to Mexico where I've been and see kids that have maybe one toy? See kids that don't have a roof over their house? See kids that have a 300 square foot house and their bedrooms are the size of your tiny bathroom? Leland, you need to appreciate what you have. You need to be content. You need to be thankful, honey. 
He needed to be reoriented, recalibrated, refocused because he was going off track, so focused on someone else. I said, our relationship with Verity is our relationship with Verity, and our relationship with you is our relationship with you. Sometimes you're going to get chocolate and she won't. Sometimes you're going to get to go to Nani and Pappy's house and she won't. Sometimes you're going to get to watch and she's going to clean. That's between you and I, and that's between her and I. And I was really trying to get his attention, right? We call it the Peter syndrome. John chapter 21, towards the end of the book of John, after Peter is reinstituted, Jesus tells him three times, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, Peter. I'm commissioning you, Peter, to go out and proclaim the good news, to watch over the other disciples and all the new believers that are going to come into the family of God. And as Jesus is sitting down with him by that warm charcoal fire, after Peter is remembering the charcoal fire where he denied Jesus three times, here's Jesus reinstating him three times. And what does Peter say to Jesus as they're sitting together? And Jesus tells him that he's going to die a martyr's death, something that was like a badge of honor for Peter. Peter looks over at the apostle John. What about this man, Lord? Who's the one that betrays you, Lord? What about him? Jesus is looking at Peter. Peter, you do what I've commanded you. I think Jesus said, Peter, you follow me. If, if he's here until I remain, that's between me and him, Peter. It's a summary of what Jesus said. You focus on me. You follow me. You do what I've commanded you to do. I'll deal with John. I'll deal with the other disciples. I have a relationship with them. You focus on your relationship with me. We can also call it the Martha, the Martha syndrome. Luke chapter 10, verse 40. Lord, tell my sister to help me with all my preparations. Here's Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from Jesus, in awe of Jesus. And Martha's like, wait a minute, she needs to be helping me. Jesus said, no, Mary has the greater part. And this is where Asaph drifted in Psalm 73. He got his eyes off of the Lord, the same Lord that he says I'm continually with at the end of the chapter. He drifted, looking to others, looking to people in the world instead of focusing on God. Proverbs 4.25, let your eyes look straight ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. That's our goal as believers. Fix your eyes on God. Colossians chapter 3, set your eyes on things above, not on things of this world. That's where we get disoriented, when we're constantly looking horizontally. Fix your eyes up. Many times when Jesus prayed, it said he looked up into heaven. It's a cultural thing for us to bow our heads, close our eyes, fold our hands. I'm not saying that's wrong. You don't necessarily have that formula laid out in scripture. When you pray, fold your hands, bow your head, close your eyes. You can pray wherever, in whatever way, but the model, typically, that Jesus laid out was to hold up his hands and look up to heaven. Yeah, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell on his face before the Father. But for me, that's a picture of where we should be, looking to heaven, because Jesus was always doing his Father's will always focused on his father, always sneaking away, the scripture tells us, to be with God. If we want to have joy, if we want to have peace, if we want to have blessing in our life, we're going to be constantly lifting our eyes up to heaven, constantly gazing at the Lord. And that's why I love the Psalms. That's the point of the Psalms, to look up to God, to see his beauty, see his glory, see his wonder, see his majesty, and be in awe of him. These last six verses are promises that every Christian can and should claim as their own as we get ready to close. It's a testimony of what pulled Asaph out of the pit, out of the confusion and disorientation. I want to close with four simple practical questions for us. Four simple practical questions 
from these last couple verses in the psalm. Number one, verse 23. Nevertheless, remember I said that word yet, nevertheless, but see that all throughout the psalms. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Here's my question for us today. Question number one, with all the distractions in your life and in my life, can we say like Asaph, I am continually with you. The temptations are raging, the weariness may come, the attacks may be relentless, but can you say, I'm continually with you, Lord? It's going to look different in all of our lives. Sometimes that's going to mean waking up a little earlier before you go to work just to seek the Lord in prayer. Maybe just read for a couple minutes. If you read the Bible for 15 minutes a day, you can read the whole Bible in one year. 15 minutes. Just set aside to the Lord. Number two. Verse 24. With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Question number two. Where do you go for counsel? Where do you go for counsel? We all need counsel, don't we? We all need help in life. Where do you go? Psalm 32, 8. Listen to what God says. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The number one place you and I should go for counsel is God's word. Some people in our day and age, they think, if I can just go to this person, if I can, I'll go pay a psychiatrist hundreds or thousands of dollars and they'll give me the answers I need. People want a magic pill today. If I can take this pill, it'll solve my anxiety and my worry and my struggles. If I can go to this person, they'll help me. Can there be help in a counselor, in a professional counselor? I would say in a Christian, godly counselor. Absolutely. Can there be help in medication at times? Perhaps there are certain circumstances, but where does God want you and I to go for counsel? His word. Meditate on his word. I will instruct you, God says, and I will teach you in the way which you should go. If more of us, I believe, were meditating and reading God's word, we wouldn't be seeking counsel in places we shouldn't. At least many Christian churches, that's what I believe. Many, many of the answers that we need are found in God's word. His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Question number three, verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart. You are my portion forever. I've quoted that probably hundreds of times. The Psalms were something for years I was clinging to. I'd walk in the halls of my job at the rescue mission. I would go into the sanctuary. I would go into the chapel, and I would just cry out Psalms to the Lord on days that were difficult, on days where I felt like I was struggling, to where I was going, God, I want to serve you. I want to glorify you. So many questions, some doubts, difficult things, and I would just go in there and quote psalms to the Lord, and this is one of them. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. What or who is your main desire in life? We should get to the place in our Christian walks with the Lord where we shouldn't have to think about the answer to that question. Someone asks you, what's your main desire? God. Philippians 3.8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who was Paul's desire? Jesus. To serve him, to love him, to lay down his life for him, he goes on to say, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue on for your progress and joy in the faith. Man, I'm hard-pressed. I want to go be with my main desire. That's Paul, Philippians chapter 1. I want to be with Jesus. It's so much better 
If anyone would know, it would be Paul. Second Corinthians, right around chapter 11, says he was caught up to paradise. He was in the third heaven. He saw things that we should long to see. He says it's very much better. In the Greek, it's hard to put a language to the words. I want to go see the Lord. I want to be with him. Yet I also want to serve the church. Who or what is your main desire in life? Last question as we close. Verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He wanted to tell of all that God had done for him. Do you tell of all of his works? Non-believers are perishing and believers need encouragement. What is coming out of our mouths? The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Songs, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to your heart, to the Lord. That's what Paul says. That should be where our heart's at. If we're meditating on his word, if we're in prayer, if we're fighting for joy, although that struggle's going to be there, not necessarily raging every day, but Peter says abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Paul says in Ephesians 6, prepare yourself for the evil day. There's those days where the flesh is raging. Are you going to fight the good fight? Are you going to make sure that what's on your lips is pleasing to the Lord so that people around you could say of you, yep, they are telling of all of God's works. Psalm 9:11. sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 105.1, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. And lastly, Luke 19, 37 through 40. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And I love it. The disciples, it says, are praising him with great joy. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I love that picture. The disciples can't help it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting. They're singing. What do the religious leaders say? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, tell them to be quiet. This is blasphemy. You don't deserve this praise and honor. I love Jesus' response. If these don't cry out, the rocks will. Don't let the rocks outpraise you. Don't let the rocks outrejoice you. Praise the Lord at all times. Lift up your head to heaven. Rejoice in the Lord and bless his name always. Amen.